Welcome to the latest episode of Schneps Connects. Today I have with me Jose Bayona, who is the Executive Director of the Mayor's Office of Ethnic and Community Media, as well as the founder of Grassroots Strategies, which is a consulting firm based here in New York City. He was a senior advisor to Eric Adams, serving as a member of the Transition and Inauguration Committees. He also served as spokesperson for Mayor Bill de Blasio and held the title of Director of Community and Ethnic Media and Deputy Press Secretary at the New York City Mayor's Office. Bayona spent most of his journalism years at the New York Daily News, where he started as a community reporter and editor. Later, he was a writer for New York One Noticias and Metro editor for El Diario before getting into city government as deputy press secretary for the Department of Transportation and press secretary for the Administration for Children's Services before joining City Hall. A native of Colombia with Venezuelan roots, Bayona holds an MA in journalism from the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism, a terrific program, urban and interactive reporting concentrations, and graduated cum laude from CUNY Baccarat program in journalism and political science from Baruch College. Jose, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining. It's great to be here today, Josh. Thank you for the invitation. That's my pleasure. To it's my have pleasure. this conversation with you today. Absolutely. And, you know, you played a major role both during the de Blasio administration and now with Eric Adams' administration, ensuring that ethnic media really has access to city government. So I'd love you to share how that role has expanded under the Adams administration and really the role of the office and the one that yourself play as well. Yeah, sure. So, look, when I came into City Hall, it was 2018, and Mayor de Blasio created the position of Director of Ethnic and Community Media at the press office. It was more to connect with the community media. So we saw the opportunity back then, and I said to the administration, we need to create this list. Um, so we need to organize all these outlets by communities and also uh, the creation of the Executive Order 47. So build the Blasio signed the executive order 47 and that was the base for the local law 83. So um, last year when I went into the Eric Adams campaign, during the campaign, we saw the opportunity to create the mayor's office of ethnic and community media. This is the first mayor's office of its kind in the United States. No other mayoral office in the United States has a mayor's office of ethnic and community media. And I would say like not in the world because we've been sure. researching and we haven't seen an office like this. So we are pioneers in this um, project. So creating this and the mayor's office took part of the executive order 47 on the spending, the reports and training city agencies. And it passed by law on September 22nd last year. So it became a law and to create the mayor's office of Indian community media in January so Eric Adams appointed me uh, for this office and the mayor said, so this is our goal is to um, connect even more that we have been connecting uh, with any community media and to make this sector of the media stronger. How? So on the advertising resources that the city provides through the campaigns. So the law set a goal of 50% of spending on the categories of TV, radio, print, and digital 
on ethnic and community media based on the outlets that are included in the citywide marketing directory that we have in the city. So that's the main goal of the office and also connecting city government, opening the doors for, you know, for commissioners, for city agencies, for projects, and for the mayor to all these outlets that right now we have more than 300 in the directory. So it's a big, big task that we have ahead of us. We've been working on this for nine months, but now Mm -hmm. we are expanding to the next step, you know, next stage of the project. So let's talk a little bit about the media landscape. Obviously, you know, we play a major role with uh, local community media, but it really is, you know, an amazing landscape because we live in the most diverse city in the world and each pocket of the city has really its own kind of ethnic communities. You know, I mean, you could see it in Flushing, Queens. You could see it in Jackson Heights, Queens. You could see it in every borough, really. There are communities that have very large ethnic communities. So talk a little bit about some of the media that people might not even be familiar with. Yes. So look, we know research, um, just talking to this outlet, um, we have seen, for example, in the South Asian community, the number of South Asian newspapers weekly mm-hmm. is really big. So now most of them, they are moving into the digital um, area. So they are strengthening their digital presence. So that's something that they, is going to be a bigger you know, opportunity for us to bring the government information into these communities. So others that we have seen is the African community. So they have the new, you know, some newspapers, and but also in the radio aspect. So they are getting into that. So there is this, um, this radio show that they targets cab drivers. And it's from 11 p.m. on Saturdays until 5 a.m., 6 a.m. on Sunday. And it's amazing how these communities, you know, the drivers are driving all night, working, and they are listening to this outlet. So, and the Latino community, you see that, you know, we have the, the usual, you know, the ones that have this, um, this tradition of being the Latino communities. But on the Caribbean community, I want to mention that sure. on the radio, the radio, uh, sector in the Caribbean is growing that much and it's growing because now they're taking advantage of the internet radio stations. And that since January that we are talking to them, we see all this penetration on the internet radio stations from the Caribbean community and the audience they have is huge. So those are new areas that we are exploring. Also, we want to explore more on WhatsApp, on WeChat, you know, on the Asian community, they use WeChat. Um, We say, okay, we need to know more about, we want to know more about that, how they are doing that. On the Orthodox community, they use the WhatsApp for messaging and say, oh, we can tap into this medium besides the print that they are very strong on the print sector. So for us, it's a new frontier. And that also, I think with push the outlets, the ethnic and community media outlets to go and expand on those frontiers. But also I want to make a distinction here. One is how the ethnic media operates in the city, you know, the business they have, how they publish and the community media that is the other aspect, you know, the the other part of the industry. Mm -hmm. So you are on the community media sector and 
yours is more like a setup type of um, distribution that is on them is sometimes they, they are more flexible on the distribution if they have newspapers or they have the radio. So I just want to be clear about this. The, the two of them, community and any media, they, they will never compete with each other. They cover who they cover. And we mm -hmm. can see that. And that's good for the city. That's good for New Yorkers. And also that's good for government. And, and I want to add here the public, the private sector that take advantage of this. Once they know more about all these media outlets, they can take advantage of this media and provide opportunities to them to grow. You know, you mentioned about how a lot of these media outlets are embracing digital media and expanding, you know, their presence online. Is that part of the landscape change that you've seen during the pandemic or what other impact did the pandemic have on community media from your perspective? I think it was mixed, the impact, because on some of them, they saw the opportunity to grow into the digital area. So before the pandemic, you know, the print business is a strong business. So, and we know that it produced more revenue than the digital business. But when we had to stop advertising on print because of many of the, most of them stopped printing during the pandemic, the early in the pandemic. So they were forced to move into the digital. So some of them were successful moving into the digital aspect and some of them were not because that's an aspect that we need to look into that. So how they train, get trainings to get better when they move to another area of the industry. So the ones that couldn't make it, now they're getting the support. Um, CUNY is working in you know, the Center for Community Media, CUNY, they're yes. working with, the, with them to provide trainings. And also we are looking into that and to say, okay, we're not going to stop advertising on this advertise on, on digital on them if they don't produce the numbers that we expect because we know they are in the transition process. So that's one. But on the other area, I mean, another aspect is that it should be a wake up call for them to say, you cannot depend anymore on the print or the traditional aspects of the industry. So you need to start looking for ways because the journalism industry has evolved immensely in the last 10 years. So yes. you need to be at pace with that. You know, you're a native, obviously, Spanish-speaking person, but what do you find in terms of people that pick up a lot of the ethnic media? Do you find that a lot of them are bilingual? Is it that a lot of people choose to read in a language that they're more comfortable in? Obviously, there's a lot of people that are new to the city and to the country that come to New York City. What do you find in terms of the readers and the, the choice of people speaking, or excuse me, reading in, in their native languages? I see that there is this pride of being able to read in another language. So they are like, okay, this is my language. Of course, you mm -hmm. feel comfortable. So when I read, when I pick up a newspaper in the streets in Spanish, like El Diario or any of those, and I read on my own language, I feel like a home. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, you know, most of these readers, they feel like. So we know that the any media targets in its majority to immigrants, people who I just came into the country, but also people who have living here for like decades. So they still read in their own language and they pass that to their sons and daughters. So right. they say, this is our language. You need to read on this. So it's something that is going to give the next generation a better opportunity because when they graduate from college, they go to the next, you know, to their jobs. They're going to say, oh, I speak another language. So I speak a second or third language. So that's, it's going to open more opportunity. And that's what the immigrants, the first generation, they are 
put in their minds of their sons and daughters to bring that. So yes, this is a plus, you know. And- it's also interesting, right? A lot of the media publishers, you know, either very small businesses or family businesses. I mean, several of the other publishers that I know in New York City are actually family businesses. I don't know if you can speak to that in terms of, you know, the size of the businesses and or, you know, how they've passed it down to generations. Yeah, look, Weekly Bengali, Koshia Matt. So he's in Queens. He's been publishing his paper for 31 years. Hmm. So, and everybody knows Koshia. And he's publishing in their own language. So sometimes they do some things in English and that, but it is like a, it's a tradition. It's a tradition. And other, he's looking now for the next generations. Who, who is going to take this? On el, in Spanish, you see El Especialito. So you see Tony Barria that he published the, for many years at Especialito and other, and other papers. Now his son yeah. is taking over the company and they have um, seven editions around the city with El Especialito and they are like a family company. So they, they have a structure and, and we know that how strong they are because they are audit. So, and they have shows their publication, how many copies they print per week and where they distribute them. So it's on document and that. So that's the media companies that we are looking, that the city is looking to work with because the more you show that you are strong in your community is the more benefits you get. But also we are supporting the ones that are starting. You know, they are like um, in the initial stages of their outlets or even the ones that after the pandemic went into trouble and they are going through a difficult time, but they can come to us, to City Hall, to our office and say, this is my situation. You know, honesty is really important. If you keep playing, if they keep playing that say, oh no, we are strong and they are not. If they say, I print 30,000 copies a week and they only print like 3,000 or 5,000. So that's when we say we need to be honest to each other so we Mm -hmm. can work together. And, you know, you're office is relatively new. And I know you've been building a team and and bringing on some members to that team. Talk about some of your goals for the year ahead. Yes. And you and your team are are working on. The team is growing. So three months ago, we hired this, the first in New York City history, the first citywide marketing director. So it's Sabrina Cam. So she's in charge of coordinating with city agencies and marketing campaigns. Mm -hmm. Now we have an associate director of outreach, Famud Connect. So um, Famud is in charge of getting, you know, connecting with communities. So because this office is not about, not only about media, it's about making connections with communities, different ethnic communities around the city and supporting the government projects on any projects that they come into our office and present. So, and also we have now um, Renette Genti and she's coming from the mayor's office of operations. She's our new chief of staff. And we have Orquilla Harissa and she's the project manager. And as you can see on this, you know, all this team that we have put together, the diversity is the main component. So mm. Asian, African, Caribbean, Middle European, you know, the reflect the city, Latino. Yes. So we are looking for a principal data analyst and that we are close to make the hiring on that. So that person will manage all the data, spending data from the city. The three big projects that we have now and that we are currently working on updating the citywide marketing directory, 
you know, after the pandemic. So we want to know who is in business and who is not in business anymore. What is the circulation and what is the influence in their communities and to know how much they were affected by the pandemic. So the other project is that we are going to train city agencies on advertising and connecting to ethnic and community media in the city. So that's per local law 83. That's the local law that created the mm -hmm. office. And it's a one training, at least one training a year. So this is the first training after the pandemic. The last one was three years ago. So you know everything that has happened in the middle. And at the end of the year, before December 31st, we have to publish a report that is going to go to the mayor, the speaker of the council and the public on spending on advertising and citywide, not only on Anglican community media, but also this is the first time that we are going to report on spending on mainstream media. So the public will see how is the spending, how much the city spends on mainstream media, how much is spent on community and any media, what agencies spend the most and what campaigns. And for the first time, we're going to look into what vendors, media vendors, the city is using to spend and um, to place all this advertising because diversity is important. Diversity, not only where we place the advertising, but also who we use to place that advertising. So the mayor has been clear about this. My administration is about diversity and that's what we want to bring in all the sectors. And we wanna make sure that these vendors are also diverse and MWBE. So they know our communities, they are connected to our communities and they are local. So they are here in our city. Listen, this job was made for you, seriously, because you have <laughs> such a great background in media that nobody could pull anything over your eyes. You know, you really have a sense of New York City and, and the landscape of uh, media as well as politics and understanding how important it is to give the facts to the public and make sure that the public is represented in terms of who they are, which is people speaking many different languages. Yes. And look, I'm an immigrant. My background is in journalism and community journalism. So, and also work as city government. So I think everything was put together for, for me to have this job. And yeah, I want to bring results to this as soon as possible. So we are working on that. We have bringing some results now, but next year we're going to see even more results on this operation. Jose, how many languages does the city communicate in, do you think? Because we talk that's about a number a, of outlets and we know how diverse these outlets are, but how that's many a great, That's a great question. Now, with the mayor's office of immigrant affairs, um, the mayor asked us in early in the administration to look into the languages, how we bring information to all the communities into their own languages. So we are looking into the whole process of the languages and the mayor's office of immigrant affairs have identified the ones on campaigns we use about 15 languages. Those are the base languages. Mm -hmm. We know that in the city, we speak more than 300 languages. Amazing. We know the dialects on that. So we said, if we use this number and we speak all these numbers, so we need to push that number up. So before that, we need to know what is the population. So how many are using that? For example, one example is the Mixteca. Mixteca is a dialect on the South Mexico. So people from that area speak Mixteca and they don't speak Spanish. Wow. So then when they come to the United States, you go to some places where they work and you see those, um, you talk to these people and you assume that they speak Spanish and they say, no, I don't speak Spanish. Say, how come you're from Mexico and you don't speak Spanish? No, because I speak Mixteca. 
I know that because I've been, you know, working with them for years. So, but people are shocked about that. And sometimes that brings some discrimination because they say, oh, you are lying to me and, or you are, or they look at the people like in a different way, but that's our city, that's our yeah. diversity. And that's Listen, how we are have big. to travel to Eighth uh, Avenue and Bensonhurst or South Williamsburg. I mean, really each part of the city is almost its own part of the world. It's really incredible and everybody, you know, gets along. But, you know, it is really important that if you want to reach the city, you have to recognize it has to be done in multiple languages. It really Ex just has to be. Exactly. Whether people like it or not, that's the reality of our great city. And that is why we have this new mayor's office of Agni and Community Media, because the media that speak to them in their language are those Agni media and the community media. So you just summarize yeah. They you know, I used to go to the printer literally to deliver our files. Before our newspapers were digital, we used to print out each page and then the pages had to be brought to the printer and the printer would take a picture of each page and burn it onto a metal plate. That's how they used to do it. Uh, I and remember when I went that. To the, and when I went to the printing plant, I used to walk around the plant. And what I used to love was picking up all of these different ethnic media outlets. Because one of the things people really should recognize too is whether it's Chinese or whether it's Hebrew, you know, these are critical, almost infrastructure for these communities. They're, some of them are extremely successful in terms of really being sustainable businesses, but they are almost like the Bibles of their community in many ways. And like you were saying before, you know, their publishers in many ways are almost like the mayor of the neighborhood. Exactly, exactly. Two examples at the Asian community, you know, uh, Flushing, Chinatown, Brooklyn, and also the Orthodox Jewish community. So the, the number of papers they have and also how influential yes. they are in their communities is amazing. So everybody should look at that because this is how we only look, you know, to the surface, you know, to the mainstream media. But when would you look at the any media down there, you know, how big is the influence to them? You know, and a big part of your job, you know, you talked about the placement of advertising, but I think it goes beyond that in terms of communicating, you know, things to the public. I mean, during the pandemic, especially, I mean, you know, there were things that everyone need to know. And, you know, I think the city actually did a great job, not just with communication, but organization when it came to getting vaccinations out. But there's something that I want to bring up that that's coming up because there's a deadline on October 31st in regards to public service loan forgiveness. So I don't know if there's anything that you can share with our listeners about that program and how public servants can have loan forgiveness. Yeah, I can share that Recently, I applied for the program. So, Great. and last month in September, so at City Hall, it was an email that they sent around. And I was like, what is this? And I didn't pay attention. So I was talking to some other colleagues here at City Hall and say, yeah, we can apply now. We have until October 31st to take advantage of the waiver. So that means that we have less than 13 days to do this for some of the people who haven't applied. And when I look into the program, I'm saying this from my own experience. So when I look into the program, I say, why I didn't look into this before? Uh, it was no promoted, but now after the pandemic, so there were some changes at the federal level. Now it is promoted. And for me, it is really beneficial because look, I went to college when I was 40 years old. I didn't go to college when I was 22, 23. I live in Colombia. I didn't have the opportunities mm -hmm. to do that. So it's, it was a different, you know, the 80s in Colombia, you know, all the 
unrest and the unofficial civil war that happened there. And that's so I had to leave the country. And when I came here after years, I realized that I'm not going to make it that much if I don't go to college. So I, I enrolled in college at 40 years old. I, in three I years, it. I got the, the, the bachelor degree, dual bachelor degree and the master three and a half years because it was very intensive. And when you start paying loans at, you know, that's, that means that I'm going to be paying loans until I'm, sure. I'm like, <laughs> and when I say this, this is my opportunity to take away my loans since I've been working almost 10 years on city government. Not only that I, I work for a nonprofit organization years ago, and that counts. Not right, only so public civ- service workers, as well as those that work in nonprofit sectors. That exactly, right? exactly. So that means that in New York City, you know, right now we have more than 250,000 people who are eligible to apply wow. for this waiver. And listen to this number, only 5,000 people had received an average of 64,000 on loan forgiveness because people in the past didn't apply for this program. So can you imagine, you know, in city government, we have more than 300,000 employees. So, and this covered not only people working at city hall or city agencies, but also the nurses, teachers, social workers, and first responders for the city. So people who work at hospitals, they can apply for this because they are part of the city government since this is a federal program, but they are part of the city government, the state government. So all of them can apply for this. This is something like a, it is best kept secret. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's a public uh, service loan forgiveness where successful applicants on average have gotten more than $60,000 in debt cancellation. And some have received well over six figures. I mean, it's unbelievable. And yeah, and let me have the opportunity to be that people don't know about it. Yes. And let me add something to that. So it applies even to those who had student debt, but didn't finish their degrees. So some of them went for college. So they spent two years at college, three years at college, but they didn't finish their degree. So they had a student, they got into student mm-hmm. debt. So, and mm-hmm. they can apply for this without having finished the program. So because the goal is to bring back money into the pockets of families. So how, you know, on this recovery process that we are in the country, around the country. So that's going to be an incentive to have more money in the pocket and to uh, give some relief because the next year, the federal government is going to start that program again. So you need to pay. But it's important to clarify that this is different from the Biden student forgiveness plan. So mm-hmm. it is two different things. So on the okay. Biden forgiveness plan, you apply for this and plan to forgive like up, up to twenty thousand. I'm I'm not sure. And I applied for that a few, you know, last week too. And this is an additional program that people can use. This one it will claim all the student debt. So the other one will give you like twenty thousand dollars on that. So that's. I would say that for people who work at government, for people who work at nonprofits, so this is a great option and everybody needs to take advantage of this as soon as possible. You know, Jose, I didn't realize that you personally were eligible. I wanted to bring that up, but I didn't realize that. What does that mean to somebody like you? Because there's been a lot of people say, oh, you know, why are people being given money to, you know, help with debt relief? But what does that mean to you and people like you and people you work with or other people that you know that have been able to, to breathe a sigh of relief with this? For me, it would mean that I would have a little 
you know, some more dollars to send my son to college. Mm. When my, my son is going to college in three years. So I'm thinking, okay, how we are going to pay for this? Because I want to help him. I don't want him to get into student debt. Because when he leaves college, he's going to be like pain and that. So I say, we're creating a plan to help him to go through college with the less debt as possible. So I'm not going to be worrying about every month to be paying, oh, I have to pay my student loan. Instead of that, I'm going to tell my son, look, here you have, you know, for your expenses, for food, for rent. And that's what gives me the peace of mind of not having, because either way, I will have to support my son in some way. So, but also paying a student loan. So it's going to be, doesn't have any value on this program, how you can get that. I have two websites here. If anyone's listening, that's interested in, in this program and definitely should let people know in your circles about it. They can go to studentaid.gov as well as pslf.nyc, pslf.nyc. Yes. So on the studentaid.gov, is to go straight to the application, you can do a studentaid.gov slash pslf. So studentaid.gov slash pslf. LF, and that's going to take you straight to the application. It takes no more than 20 minutes to fill out the application. Even if you don't have the information about when you work 10 years ago at this nonprofit. So if you don't have that information, you just put like some dates that you think that that happened. The government will see that in your tax returns. They will see when you reported taxes from that company. After you submit the application online, you print the application and you call the government agency and say, I need you to confirm this so they can confirm. But once the application is in, you are in. So, and they will work with you. Even if your employer refused to say, I'm not going to certify this. Sometimes something's happened. There is an option to say, my employer does not want to certify this. And the government will work on that because the government has the records of when you pay taxes, when you work at that organization or at or the city government or state or federal government. Well, hopefully somebody listening to this will be able to take advantage of it because I can imagine it's life-changing. It's really, so I'm promoting this, you know, City Hall is doing big efforts to promote this because the benefits that it's going to bring to all our workers, you know, the people who have worked here for, you know, in city government for years and after they retire, they say, oh, now I have to take part of my retirement to pay the student loan. No, this is going to be a benefit for them because they don't have to worry about that. But this is the moment. We only have less than 13 days to apply for this. We don't know if this waiver is going to come back in the future. You know how the political landscape is right now. Mm -hmm. So it's time to take advantage of this. If not, many people might regret this if they don't do it now. Sure, especially if they're eligible. Well, Jose, I want to thank you for all that you do and helping to communicate, you know, really across the city of New York. and, And I really appreciate your time. Yes, anytime, Josh. Thank you for having me here. And just want to say thank you to everybody who's listening today. Make sure to subscribe to Schneps Connects wherever you get your podcasts or stream us online at podcast.schnepsmedia.com. 